Um, yeah, if you weren't here last week, or if you slept or were totally checked out, you might have missed, but we're in Ephesians, our Ephesians series. Um, and Becca did just a killer job last week setting us up and getting us ready to dive into this thing. It's kind of uh, it's kind of ambitious. We're trying to tackle this book in four weeks, since that's all the time we have. Uh, tier, you know, we're almost done with the semester. Um, some of you are excited about that, but we're kind of sad. Um, sorry, I gotta, I gotta get in here. There we go. Um, so yeah, but we are we're gonna do our best, you know, um, to get through it. I'm gonna pray, and uh, just a lot of prayer happening. Um, but Lord, just please speak through me, um, speak through your word um, that you gave to Paul and to the people in Ephesus. Um, I pray that we would be listening and thinking and, and, and hearing what you have for us as we uh, go through this book in these coming weeks. Um, we just pray um, over all the tests and nerves and all that that's coming up at the end of the semester, that you'll be with us. Um, or be with them, rather. I don't have to take a test, thank God. Um, and just help help them to remember what they need to and study well. And help us to learn uh, what you have for us as we close up this semester. And pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so yes, Ephesians. Just a little brief stuff. Um, this is Paul to a group of churches in Ephesus. It's an interesting book because it's one of the few... Paul books where he's not writing to a specific church, at least as best as we can tell. Um, he's writing to the town of Ephesus where there were multiple churches. Uh, so in some ways, you know, in Paul, like in 1 Corinthians, it's kind of interesting because he's like back and forth with them about stuff going on. Here we get a much more like kind of broad sample of what Paul would say, really it seems like to Christians in general. And so in some ways, uh, getting Ephesians into our context is a little bit easier. We don't have to have that extra step of like, okay, this is their specific thing. What was Paul trying to say overall? Uh, so it's kind of interesting just to think about that as we go through this. This is a little bit more of a theological book in a broad sense for Paul. Uh, and okay, I want to remember that concept from last week. We're talking about maturity in Ephesians. We're going for what? What word? Axios. Good. Okay. The Greek word that's translated into worthy. Uh, that Ephesians 4.1, right? Therefore, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. That's kind of the theme verse. It's where right in the middle of Ephesians and the two sides of Ephesians kind of hang on it. Um, so, like, like I said, Becca set us up with that idea. And now, over the next three weeks, we're going to go into specifics about what it looks like to live axios, uh, to live worthy of this call. And we're going to break it down by looking specifically at what are some ways it looks like to live opposite of that, anaxios. Um, so, tonight we're talking about one of those anaxios scales. Um, can you hit the next one? Yeah, so there, there they are. So we've got listening, not at all, doing, way down. Listening and doing in tandem, and then... We're listening, but we're not obeying. We're not actually living any of it out. Tonight, we're talking about this one over here. Listening, not at all, but we are doing stuff. So what does it look like, basically, when we have missed the, we have missed the step of actually hearing God's voice before we set out and start doing a bunch of things? And this can be both in a Christian or non-Christian uh, frame of mind. We can be doing things for God, but not actually have listened to what God wants us to do, not actually have internalized the call he has, for us and how to live out his words. And so we're just doing a bunch of stuff. We're just kind of like on the hamster wheel going. Uh, and God's like, okay, well, 
at some point, I'm going to need you to actually like slow down and hear what I need for you to do. So that's kind of what we're talking about tonight. Um, let me see. I'm going to be sure I said all that. Uh, okay, cool. So let's let's actually look at this text. Open up your Bible. Let's go if you have them. Uh, we're going to read through some of Ephesians. <coughs> I actually brought a real Bible. Wow. I never do this, but I'm excited about it. We'll see how this goes. We'll come back and forth. Um, okay. So, this first section of Ephesians is talking about God's action, right? And then it's, it stops in four and kind of transitions to our action. Um, so, let's go to 1.15, and we're going to start there. Um, before there, I'm, I'm just skipping over it for time's sake, but basically there, it, it opens with kind of a normal, like, letters at the time had a greeting, and then some kind of blessing or thanksgiving there. That's kind of what, what we're going for, or what we're skipping over. Uh, it's still good, don't get me wrong, I'm just saying Okay, so 115. This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the mighty working of his strength? Okay, so this is a prayer that Paul is praying for the Christians in Ephesians. And what specifically is he praying for? He's praying for the Spirit to give wisdom and revelation, or that the Spirit is wisdom and revelation, so that he would give those to people. And then these three specific things. So you can look there and say, you can see that he's asking for them to have hope. Basically, that their heart would be enlightened to know the hope, right? So hope is the first thing. And then secondly, wealth of this glorious inheritance. So hope and an inheritance. He wants, them to, he wants them to know these things. And then the third thing, power, right? So immeasurable greatness of his power. So hope, inheritance, power. I want you to remember those. Um, <clears throat> okay, so then he's, he's just prayed for those things to be revealed to them. For them to experience these things, to know them, to be enlightened to them. Okay, then going down, starting in verse 20. It says, He exercises power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Okay, so this little section here following that, he's riffing on the power thing. It's almost like he's anticipating them being like, okay, tell me more about this power. He's like, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you about it. So, no big deal. This is the power that, one, raised Christ from the dead, right? Now he's saying that same power is seated with God up in the heavenly realms and is now over everything. Um... So he's, he's praying this kind of intercessory prayer. So like just when you pray for your friend, like, hey, help my friend feel better. That's the same kind of prayer Paul is praying. He's just praying it for the Ephesians, for them to have this like understanding of God and his power. Um, and along with that, he's praying, knowing they're going to read this, so he's reminding them and encouraging them about this stuff as he goes. He's reminding them specifically of the power that God has already shown in doing things like raising Jesus from the dead. So in some sense... 
he's praying for them, but also you can see he's like also trying to encourage them by just stating these things and reminding them of that. It kind of reminds me of like when you're like, I don't know, dealing with a friend who's like struggling or something is going on and, and they're just like kind of wallowing in it. And you're like, hey, like, remember like you a week ago, like how you like had some fight in you, had some gumption, like that's, that's the side of you that needs to come out. It's almost like Paul's using a similar like kind of argument like, hey, remember, like this is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Like, don't forget about this. Don't forget that that is the power that you are now in and a part of. Okay, so let's keep going, but remember those three things, hope, inheritance, and power. So chapter two, this isn't a new thought. I know we break it up in our Bibles, but this is just him continuing to talk about all that God has done on his side of the equation. So Paul turns away from what he did in Christ, and now he's talking about us, what what God does in us. So, Chapter 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit, now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Okay, so um, Paul is basically pulling out like they are all now part of this new body um, that is now under Christ, right? And so we're going to skip through 11 through, let me check here. Oh, no, we're not. We're not going to skip yet. Okay, keep going. Sorry. Chapter 2, verse 11. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those who called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who made both groups one, and tore down the dividing wall of hostility, in his flesh, he made it of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body, through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens of the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him the whole building, being put together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Okay, so he's saying, like, this is who you used to be, but this is who you are now. Like Isaiah was talking about, you are now a child of God. This is the stuff Paul is talking about here. He's talking about, like, you now belong to a new group of people. You're no longer the person you used to be. 
Um, so he's making this argument about all that God has done to bring us from where we were into this new uh, way of living. And so we are going to skip 3, 1 through 13. That's Paul basically giving his kind of personal testimony side of that same idea. He's like, this happened to me too. Like, this is where I was, and this is what happened. Um, so for time, we're skipping over that. But 3, 14, let's pick up there. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height, and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, cool. So I know we read that last week, but I want to read it again, because we're in this book. We're needing to soak it up a little bit. So turn to the person next to you. Just talk about what stood out to you this week in this passage. And you drink the water. And I don't know what that says about my cardio that I'm out of breath to start reading. Probably, probably not good. Um, okay, so 3, 14 through 21. What does he ask for here? This is another prayer, right? It's really neat. Um, but he talks about them being strengthened by that same power he talked about earlier. So there's that power popping up again. And again, how does it happen? It says through the Spirit. That's, again, this is happening through the Spirit, not by them, like, mustering up the courage to be strengthened. Um, he also talks about them having faith that would allow Christ to dwell in their hearts. So it's kind of this conditional thing. For Christ to dwell in their hearts, they have to have faith. Um, and then he talks about us being rooted in love and this really, like, kind of famous little phrase around comprehending the length, width, height, depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love. It's beautiful, right? It's this prayer, but it's also kind of poetic. And then what's our next verse? It's our theme verse, right? So therefore, therefore is always like, okay, I've said all this, now I'm going to tell you why. I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you've received. That's our theme verse. So that concludes us from the first section where Paul's talking about all that God does and transitions into the second half of Ephesians, which we will get into in the next couple weeks. Um, so you see what Paul does. He spends half the letter praying through and bringing them through, theologically in these prayers, a bunch of different aspects of what it means to live a Christian life, what God does in us, what God's love is, is looking like, what his action looks like, and his power. And all this he's saying is like planned long before you were here, long after you're gone, God is still going to be doing things. And he's kind of needing these thoughts to be swirling in our heads before the second half of the letter where he transitions to actually talking to them about what they need to start doing in response to this. So he needs, he's like setting up their action. But in order to set that up, he keeps harping on like, God is doing all of this. And so their response to all that Paul is talking about, their response to all that God has done is to live worthy of that. To live worthy of all of that amazing stuff that Paul just talked about. To live axios to that. And I think, based on all of that, we can see that's kind of a tall order, right? But again, we've woven throughout there, talks about how this happens, and it's by the Spirit. So it is a tall order if it weren't for the Spirit. But notice along the whole way, the emphasis is on what God does, what the Spirit does, what the Spirit teaches us reveals to us how God's power helps us. 
The emphasis is not on us doing more, trying harder, working our fingers to the bone, trying to grasp that maturity. So this language about the Spirit really, I mean, honestly echoes the words of Jesus. If you want to turn to John 14, um, this is Jesus giving some final thoughts to uh, his disciples. But anyways, John 14, 25 through 26, he says, I have spoken these things to you while I remain with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. So Paul picks up on that idea and is working that into his prayers and his reminders to the Ephesians. Okay? So he's echoing some of that, what Jesus said. Okay, that brings me to my first point and uh, explaining a little bit of the title of this sermon. First point is we need apocalypse, not ambition. We need apocalypse, not ambition, not just ambition. Ambition is, is good in certain, certain respects. Um, so I'm, I'm talking about ambition there in this like self-fulfillment sense. And guys, this is key. So if we're working towards maturity, if we have a series on maturity, um, it's, we have to realize this from the get-go. This is not something we just kind of white-knuckle. We just grasp harder and harder at. If you're doing that to get to maturity, you're missing the point, um, which in some ways I hope is a little bit relieving. I don't know if you thought we were just going to come up here and tell you about all the things you're doing wrong. But that's not where Paul starts. Paul starts with what God is doing, right? So remember the scales. If you're doing is weighing out God's calling, even if you're doing is aiming for maturity, but it's weighing out God's calling and his voice and his actions, you are anaxios. That's, again, what tonight is all about. And maturity is not about you initiating first. It's about you responding to what God has already been initiating in you. It's about you matching your step to God. <clears throat> so it's like a, kind of like a three-legged race, like if you've ever done that. You have to tie your foot to God's foot. He's already running. You have to join him. Which I realize in a three-legged race would actually be really hard. Um, <laughs> so it kind of falls apart there. But that was what came to mind, so we're working with it. But Paul is like really harping on this. It's God's work. And it's God's church. Christ is the head of the church. The body of Christ is us, the church. But Christ is still the head. And we are existing underneath him. And we're either attached to the head and working with the head, or we're just a severed hand kind of on the side of the road, useless and bleeding out, right? I'm going to read um, something like we talked about last week. We're going to be pulling from this book, uh, Practice Resurrection. So I'm going to read a little excerpt from that that I think helps us get a better image of this. So this is from uh, Peterson's book on Practice Resurrection, which is about Ephesians. Anyways, a good part of growing up in the land of resurrection, growing up in Christ, involves practicing a kind of acquired passivity. The word passivity carries a bad odor in American language. It's looked at as insipid, spineless, no good, lazy, lacking gumption, kind of a couch potato, good for nothing. We are brought up to admire and imitate get-up-and-go, hustle, drive, and take-no-prisoners strategies. Energy and ambition, single-minded purpose, is undistracted and unswerving race for the finish, an eye-on-the-ball concentration. A go a long way in making money, acquiring academic degrees, winning awards, climbing Mount Everest, and hitting home runs. This is indisputable. But such goals, all of them much lauded by our culture, have very little to do in themselves with living a mature life, living to the praise of his glory. So, don't start with what goals you need to set or what steps you need to take. It's a little counterintuitive, but the first thing we need to do 
is we need revelation from God, not our own evidence. And that is why this sermon this week is called Apocalypse. Original meaning, so a lot of us have like imagery of Mad Max and the end of the world, but Apocalypse in its actual original meaning was this thing about reveal. We, if you're a the Revelation Pizza Theo, you're already familiar with this. It's about uncovering, revealing, and it's associated with illumination and knowledge. And so <clears throat> Tim Mackey, as he explains kind of Ephesians and the way it works, is Ephesians works as community's guides for comprehending and responding to the apocalypse of this crucified and risen king of the cosmos. So it's saying, like, God is revealing things to us. It's up to us to sit and peel back those layers with him in order to understand. So chapters 1 through 3, which we are just in, is all about Paul helping people comprehend what God is doing. It's the unveiling of what God is doing, and in some cases, just a reminder. And then chapter 4 to 6, now we can go to responding. Does that make sense? So he opens with this song of praise, this poetry, and honestly, he's not just engaging our brains here, but he's giving us this experience of worship, which is a part of God revealing himself. Worship, when we come here, when we do it in our car, when we do it alone, that is a part of us learning to let God reveal himself. So, in order to start on this road of maturity, we have to learn to start here. We have to learn to seek out voice. We have to look for apocalypse. We have to slow down, we have to listen, not just ask on whatever we have wings for. I'm going to read a couple more quotes um, from the book that I think are helpful. So, this orienting introduction text in Ephesians places, oh gosh, uh, places us in a cosmos in which God starts everything. Everything. There is not a single verb commanding us to do something. Not so much as a hint or a suggestion that we are to do anything at all. There's no requirements, there's no laws, there's no chores, no assignments, no lessons. We are born into a cosmos in which all the requirements and conditions for growing up are not only in place, but already in action. This gets us out of the driver's seat forever. It is not self-help. This is God's ongoing project, and we have to learn the skill of receiving receiving what God is actively doing for us. Are you tracking? I'm going to keep harping on this, but we have got to keep the right perspective on maturity. It is not a race out of our own efforts. It is a joining of God, a constant revolving around God. We can't lose sight of this. We are so wont to just go off on our own. <clears throat> Next one, we have short attention spans. Having been introduced to God, we soon lose interest in God, become preoccupied with ourselves. Self expands in the soul atrophies. Psychology starts to trump theology. Our feelings and our emotions, our health, our jobs, our friends, our families, all of them muscled away to the center stage. God, of course, is not exactly sent packing or shut in a closet or closed up in the Bible, but God is consigned to the sidelines, conveniently within calling distance to help out in emergencies, or be available for consultation from the times we have really run out of answers. I think it's pretty true. The apocalypse revelation is the first part of the process. We start with learning to recognize God's voice, everything he is already doing. How? Primarily, as we see in Paul's approach in 1 through 3, by prayer and worship. So, point number two. We need callous knees, not callous hearts. I used that phrase a couple weeks ago in my talk on prayer, and I want to use it again here. 
And I want that image to just stick with you. We literally need to be on our knees in prayer at least once every day. The primary language that we use as we grow up in Christ, which is to say as we practice resurrection, living into that resurrection life, the primary language that we use is prayer. Again, notice how Paul frames maturity. He frames it by praying for the Ephesians. I'm going to read a little bit of it again. 1, 16 through 19. It says, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom, the revelation, and the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. <clears throat> and then in 3, 14 through 18, again, prayer. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being, through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height, and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So, where do I recommend we start? Right there on our knees, asking the Spirit to teach us and show us these things that Scripture is saying right there, it is the Spirit's job to show us. So we just need to ask. God has already said that's how he will show us. And we need to learn this and think about this as just the language of this new country we're citizens of. Remember that part in this opening few chapters where he's talking about us now belonging to this new family. That's a new country we're now citizens of. The language of the kingdom is the language we need to learn. The language of what Peterson calls this resurrection country. And I, I really actually love that language for um, this idea. It takes my mind up kind of the familiar and pushes it towards imagining this exciting and powerful realm of God that I am now a part of, right? Like we are now in a new country. I have access to this. And what he means by resurrection country this place where God and Christ dwell. It's the, the already the not yet, right? It's the kingdom that was inaugurated when Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It's the citizenry we have as co-heirs with Christ. It's the brother-sister language we have with other believers. We're all now part of that, adopted into that. So, what do we do when we visit a foreign country and we intend to stay? We study the language, right? So anyone who's tried this will tell you the best way to learn a new language is to, one, practice it every day, and two, if possible, to actually go live somewhere where people talk that language every day. And that, guys, is just a perfect metaphor for us. The language of resurrection country is God's language. It's prayer. So we need to practice this new language every single day in order to learn how to navigate this new country, how to mature and grow into completion alongside the other people here. And we need to do it surrounded by other people who speak the language too. And that is the church. Remember 1, 22 through 23, talking about Christ is the head. We are the body underneath him, but we are also co-heirs with him. That is the church. We pursue learning this new language both individually, praying every day, but also together, learning the language from the other people who also are learning to speak it. 
So just like you pursue learning a new language best when you're in the country, surrounded by the people who speak it, you see God's revelation best when you're surrounded by and learning with people who also speak this language of resurrection country. Guys, that is why the church is so important. It's not a Sunday pit stop. It's a day in, day out of growing up together. And we can't do it alone. Darby's going to talk more about that idea of all together in a couple of weeks. But that does fit in right here, right? So we need callous needs. We need praying often mindset. We need to ask God to reveal himself to us in the ways that right here he said he would. So Paul prays and asks the Spirit to teach Ephesus Christians hope, teach them inheritance, to teach them what power they worship and have access to, to teach them love. So we need to start there. Get on our knees and ask the Spirit for the same thing. I mean that literally. I would spend time on each one of those things. Spirit, teach me what it means to really have hope, to know what my hope really is. Spirit, show me what you mean by inheritance. Show me what powerful things you are doing around me or in me. Show me how to love. We need callous knees, not callous hearts. Okay, third point. We need to slow down, not speed up. We need to slow down, not speed up. This goes to stuff Veronica was talking about. So we need to realize that maturity is not a sprint. It's a marathon, right? Mighty oaks do not go from seedlings to rich canopies in a day or a year or even a decade. It takes a long time. God is apparently not as big of a fan of the rush growth process as we are. In resurrection country, we don't live in there and, and see this thing as a transactional kind of place to be, where I just ask God to change this one thing I've realized is deficient in me. He gives me that change, then I wait for the next thing until I realize something else, then I go back to him and ask for that change. That's transactional. That's not relational. That's not how God intended for us to be with him. This stuff takes time. And again, we need to seek God's words to be able to know how to keep in step with him. So I want to transition to give you some more ideas of how we actually do this. And I mean this for us as a community, not just for these things to be done on our own. Although doing some of this on our own is a part of it. Remember, learning the language you study, usually on your own, but you also practice it with other people. Same thing here. So how do we go about this? First thing, I think we need to meditate on the scripture more. Meditate on scripture more. I've had this image in my head of a tea bag and a cup. We're the cup. And then scripture, God's voice is calling, all that's wrapped up in scripture is the tea bag. So we need to steep ourselves in scripture. We need to spend so much time soaking up this language of God, and the words of God, that we begin to be flavored for it, flavored by it. Just like that hot water is flavored by the tea over time, right? The longer it sits with it, the more the flavor comes out. Then the words of God overflow from us. They're sprinkled in our conversations. They work themselves into our thoughts. Colossians 3.16 talks about this. I'm going to go there real quick. It says, Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. So in order for us to live axios, we have to get familiar with the voice of God. So soak yourself in his words that we already have. 
I have some specific suggestions for this. I thought it would be helpful. Obviously, the Gospels are a great place to be. Um, the Psalms, those have been used over and over um, throughout Christian history as meditative literature for us. But let's remember where Paul points his listeners to specifically. So I told you to remember these three. He points them to understanding their hope, their inheritance, and the power of God. And then I didn't tell you this one, but also he talks about that they would learn to love and learn to understand God's love. So I have some suggestions for specific passages of Scripture that I think we should really get familiar with as a community. Scriptures I think we should meditate on over and over. So first one, around love. Um, John 15 through 17. If you were here for our John series last year, you would have heard some of this stuff. Um, or actually all of it, read all of it. But particularly chapter 17. So it's this it's prayer of Jesus um, to God. And in it, you really just get to see reflected back to us Jesus' heart for us, essentially. It's beautiful. It's a great passage to meditate on for the concept of love. Like, what does it look like to love people like Jesus does? We have these stories that show it. But in this passage, we like hear from Jesus' own lips his heart. And I think it's so good for us to, to think through over and over. Okay, the next one, Ephesians 3, 17 through 19. So that one should be familiar to you. We just read it. Now, that's the one that's in that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width height and depth of God's love. Um, okay, so that's on love. Those are just a couple. Obviously, there's plenty of scripture. Just giving us somewhere to start. And then next one, inheritance. So he talks about they would know their inheritance. Okay, Romans 8. We talked about this one earlier in the year when we were talking about identity and where we get our value, if you remember that. But guys, we have to understand this one. Like I talked about a couple weeks ago, we have to understand who we are to God. What it means to be co-heirs with Christ. What it means to be the child who can interrupt the father and bang on the door in the middle of the night. And this has profound answers to us about all of the identity questions that surround us and swirl in our head and are in the culture right now. So if we're going to make any sense of all that, if we're going to be able to stand firm, we have to internalize our real and true identity. So I want you to meditate on Romans 8. Pray for the Spirit to show you who you are and where your inheritance is. Uh, and then hope. Okay, so this one, so important. We have to truly internalize where all this is going. We're going towards resurrected bodies, physical bodies, a totally new and good earth with mountains and trees and people who have fully matured and become one with the Father. And these pockets of kingdom that we talk about now, the, the overlap between that new creation and, and the now, the already not yet, all of that will be just brought to completion. It'll be everywhere. And if you have really internalized that mindset and realized that hope that you actually have, it makes all of the crap, all of the suffering in this world, and all the pain we experience, it just makes it pale in comparison to what's coming. I'm not saying it doesn't make it nothing, or doesn't make it still real, but it just resets what we think and how we experience that stuff. So we need to start living like we really believe that. And to do that, I think we have to really internalize our hope. So, good passage for this. 1 Corinthians 15. Um, Revelation 19 through 22 in particular. I mean, the book of Revelation as a whole. I mean, some of it's pretty wild. But 19 through 22 in particular. Um, yeah, meditating on those scriptures. 
guys, this is so key. There's an analogy that works really well for this. I heard it recently, but um, the difference that hope makes for us is like this. If someone is working for a year under kind of the worst conditions you can imagine, like it's just a terrible place, there's repetitive work, like it's meaningless, and it's, maybe it's hot and dark in there, and they're working for a year, and they know, and you got two people doing this. One of them, though, is working for $15,000, and one of them is working for $15 million. They're gonna do the same job for that year, but their experience of that job is gonna be wildly different. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about internalizing our hope. Like if you really understand and really know what's coming and have that as what you're like looking at as what's coming, it changes how you experience the now. So we need to meditate on scripture. I also love, this one's just kind of a freebie, the Bible Project podcast, not their videos, but their podcasts. They like go through scripture very slowly and like unpack it at this like almost snail space. So if you're into that, I recommend it. It might be a little bit much sometimes, but I do recommend it. So meditate on scripture, that's the first thing. Secondly, we need to learn the rhythm of worship. Actually, I'm pretty excited about our community's attitude towards worship, I, uh, especially when we come together. So let's just keep it up. Keep growing in this area for sure, but I just want to say, like, I'm, I don't have a lot to say here. I'm so thankful for y'all's devotion to worshiping God. It's really beautiful. And then the last one is Sabbath. This goes to slowing down. I mean, we did a whole sermon on Sabbath at the end of last semester, but we, we need to learn to carve out space for Sabbath. There's this imagery of the cathedral in time, right? So um, you may have heard of this already, but we build beautiful cathedrals, or at least we used to, um, as a way of carving out physical space in the world that served a specific purpose. So it pointed the human towards the divine, it facilitated worship, and pointed towards the new heavens and new earth beauty with the kind of like stained glass or stories of scripture pointed to that. So the idea is that similarly, we need to create cathedrals in time. So time is the plane that we operate in. In order to slow down and do this repeatedly, we need to carve out these pockets that are devoted to the specific purpose of being with God, resting from our work and striving, allowing our minds to just kind of reckon with our helplessness and hopelessness without God's sustaining power in life. And that is just a total kind of rejection of our society's restlessness, its pace, its achievement mindset. So Sabbaths are critical in this resistance mindset. They help us resist that idolatry. It forces us to remember our reality. And it carves out time to be in resurrection country with God and with each other. Yeah, do Sabbath with each other too. Whole day doesn't have to be alone. So, in conclusion, if you realize at some point that this sermon was basically summed up in listen to God, pray, go to church, and read your Bible, then you're right. I don't have a lot of new stuff, and that's good. That's called heresy sometimes. Uh, I'm just hoping to recontextualize those key aspects of our life to us. Maybe to renew our excitement for them a little bit. Next week, Stephen is going to transition, as Ephesians does, and talk about our side of the scale. So what happens when we don't listen um, or when we don't act on what God initiates. But I don't. I didn't want us to go there, and Paul apparently didn't want them to go there. We realized that whatever good happens, whatever maturity happens, it's because of God's work. It starts there. It was all happening before we arrived. It will all continue after we are done. And in order to live axios, we need apocalypse, right? We need the Spirit to show us 
our hope. Show us love. Show us who we are to God. Only then can we like live out of that revelation faithfully on the other side. We try to do it without hearing the call or walking away from eternity and just back towards our own pursuits. So I'm going to pray. Lord, thank you. Um, thank you for your word that you've given to us. Thank you for loving and working through us before we even know how to do anything or what to do. You're so good to us, and you show us how to live, so help us listen and seek that out uh, and act on it. Mr. Henry,